Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 13. Have you wanted to work with PDFs in Python? Maybe you want to extract text, merge, and concatenate files, or even create PDFs from scratch. Are you interested in building hardware projects using a Raspberry Pi? This week on the show, we have David Amos from the Real Python team to discuss his recent article on working with PDFs. David also brings a few other articles from the wider Python community for us to discuss. David searches for the latest Python news, links, and articles to produce PyCoders Weekly with Dan Bader. PyCoders Weekly is a free email newsletter for those interested in Python development. And along with David's article on PDFs, we discuss another recent RealPython article on building physical projects with the Raspberry Pi. And we also discuss articles from the community about the peps of Python 3.9, why you should stop using datetime.now, Python dependency tools, and several ways to pass code to Python from the terminal. All right, let's get started. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. Interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, David. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're doing something slightly different this week. I brought David on board It's a bit of an experiment. We're going to try this out. We're also going to continue to ask the weekly questions at the end. So like I said, we're just going to alternate between these topics and kind of go into depth. And of course, all this stuff's going to be heavily connected through lots of show notes and links. Please check that stuff out either in your podcast player or again at realpython.com slash podcast. So David, what's your first topic there? Uh, First one I've got is an article written by Brett Cannon called The Many Ways to Pass Code to Python from the Terminal. Brett Cannon, uh, for those that don't know who he is, he's a, he works for Microsoft and he's the manager for the distributed development team of the Python extension for Visual Studio Code. So if you use Python and VS Code, he's one of the managers for that project. He's also a member of the Python Steering Council. Cool. So he's a pretty important guy in the, in the Python world. And he put together this article called The Many Ways to Pass Code to Python from the Terminal. So most people are probably familiar with running a .py file by just typing Python and then the path to that file. That's a pretty common way of of running a Python program. Sure. But there's lots of other ways to pass code to Python from the terminal, some of which I had never even heard of before. (laughs) Cool. So he's got six different ones in uh, in this article, and I'll just kind of go through and, and kind of summarize each of them real quick. The first one he mentions is piping from standard in, which you can, if you have, for example, you can echo something on the Unix terminal, pipe that into uh, Python command, and it'll execute whatever you echo. You can also uh, redirect a file into Python using the little less than symbol or the left caret, whatever you prefer to, to call that. And so these are the kind of your standard Unixy type ways of, of shuffling data around on the terminal. And he says here, you know, there's nothing really surprising there thanks to Python's Unix heritage. So it's probably not something you'd use very often. It's just kind of a corollary of, of Python coming from, from a Unix background. Yeah. Another one, and this one is actually pretty useful, is running Python with the dash C flag, which 
allows you to pass a string into Python and have it just run that that string. So if you do Python dash C and then in quotes print high, it'll run that print function and print high on the on the terminal. So you can do this if you need to check just a couple of lines of code without having to actually launch the REPL. Okay. Uh, so that's kind of a neat way to do it. So you could do like a test of like a import or something like that to make sure that it's available or something. Something like that, or just if you run a quick couple of lines of code that you, know, you want to see how it works or what the output is. Okay. Then there's using the dash M flag to run a package. And I think some people, this is going to be a little bit less familiar than using Python with like a, a file path, but I think it's uh, it's relatively common these days. If a lot of people that use the VNV uh, package from the standard library, run that yep. as a package. You do the Python dash M VM to create your virtual environment. So this is how, if you have a, a package that specifies a dunder main.py py file, then it'll, it'll run that package. A couple of, of them that I thought were kind of surprising and I'd never heard of before is that you can actually run a directory, which I guess in retrospect, it's sort of like running a package kind of. Yeah, but I'd never really thought of it that way. So if you just have a, a directory that has a dundermain.py, you can run that directory as if it were a package. But the one that was really surprising to me is executing a zip file. This is something I had no idea that you could do and had never even thought about it. Huh. But if, if you have a zip file that contains a dundermain.py, then you can point Python at that. And I guess it will decompress that file and run whatever is in there. Nice. That's very cool. Yeah. I was familiar with like two of those. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's really cool. It's a whole bunch of uh, additional tools for running your code. So my first one is called the PEPS of Python 3.9, and it's by Jake Edge at uh, lwn.net, which I guess maybe it used to stand for Linux Weekly News, but it's not that site's not purely focused on Linux anymore. Yeah. Python 3.9, the beta release, is already come out. I think a couple of weeks ago now. And so it's sort of going into what's going on with the PEPs that are in there. And if you're not familiar with PEPs, those are Python enhancement proposals. These are the ones that were accepted as part of Python 3.9. So you can check them out as part of the beta. The first one that they go into in the article is PEP 616 or 616. And it's about string methods that can remove prefixes and suffixes. You might think of like, the existing methods that can allow you to remove sort of, you know, strip things from the beginning, R strip and L strip. And the problem with them is that they remove all the characters that you include in there. They're not specifically like, you know, what you'd set up as like a prefix or a suffix at the end of a string. And so this is being much more specific and having done a real deep dive on <laughs> string methods, uh, I could see how these could be added and could be useful in certain circumstances. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, get something a little more <laughs> specific and cause maybe a little less, uh, confusion or errors. The next one is actually right next in order. PEP 617 is about a new PEG parser, P-E-G parser for CPython. And it was proposed by Guido Van Rossum himself and a couple others. Python originally developed by Guido 30 odd years ago is currently using an LL1 parser and parses things from left to right and leftmost derivation. It kind of just goes through, grab each individual token and kind of you know, combine them together. And the peg parser is parsing expression grammar. And so one of the reasons for, I guess, he worked with the LL originally had to do with, I guess, memory and the limits of computers and memory, <laughs> if you even go back 20 years ago, is pretty drastic compared to today. Yeah. And computers have so much more of that memory now. Even Raspberry Pi, something I'll talk about later, come with 
you know, incredible amounts of memory and we're not quite needing to do the parsing quite the same way. But anyway, it, it kind of goes into that. And, and Guido has a separate series of articles on Medium about peg parsers in case you're interested in learning a little more about what the proposal is. And I think the proposal actually talks about it having not only the LL1, but the peg parser kind of both running uh, in 3.9, which it may then think the goal is to have it replaced in 3.10. Anyway, so his whole idea is just going to allow for a lot more flexibility in the evolution of the language and how the language is parsed. So getting some deep computer science there. <laughs> yeah, and from what I, I understand about it, there's there's some parts of, of the language that re- require some real kind of hacky type things that they had to do to get them to, to parse correctly or to be understood correctly, and that this is going to alleviate some of that and allow them to write, I guess, some cleaner code around those those sections and uh, just handle it more naturally, which I think is always a good a good thing too. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it looks like there's possibly a little bit of a, a performance boost from it, like a, around the order of like 10%. That's good. So the next one is uh, PEP615, which is support for the IANA time zone database to be built into the standard library. And IANA, the Internet Assigned Numbers Authority standard that's out there, before that, you would have to kind of usually import additional time zone packages to help with that. So that'll be kind of nice to have that built in. The article touches on PEP 593, which is uh, kind of goes a little deeper into type hints with flexible function and variable annotations. And the last one I want to touch on is just PEP 602, which I spoke briefly about with Lucas Longo when he was on episode seven. He's the current release manager for Python 3.8 and 3.9. And he mentioned how, you know, one of the big changes was for them to switch over to this yearly release standard, this annual release cycle for Python compared to an 18 month cycle. And he was talking that he was thinking back in episode seven, that he was going to be the release manager for Python 3.10. And actually they have found a different release manager. His name is Pablo Galindo Salgado. He's going to be the next release manager, which once the first beta comes out, that's when they start actually start looking at 310. And so they'll be start working on that soon. Yeah. What's your next article? Well, actually, I want to clarify something real quick. I, I just realized about the uh, the peg parser. Yeah, go ahead. So it's not that there's necessarily a 10% boost in performance. It's that the performance is within 10% of the existing parser. So it could be okay. It's like a plus or minus there. So sure. Okay. So yeah, which shouldn't be a big hit one way or the other, hopefully. Exactly. Yeah. Good. Okay. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah. I just happened to notice that as I was reading through the the article. Well, the next thing I've got is perhaps a little biased, but uh, it's it's one of my own that we just released on realpython.com. Woo! Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago now, or I don't know the exact the exact date, but it's it's creating and modifying PDF files in Python. It's obviously about PDF files. It's a thorough introduction to working with PDFs in Python, but it's not an exhaustive reference. So it's really geared towards newcomers to the Python language. And it's it's people who want to find practical uses for, uh, for Python in, in the real world. And some of the things that it covers are how to read text from a PDF, how to extract text from a PDF into a .txt file, how to concatenate files, which is where you take all the pages from one PDF and then all the pages from a second PDF and just sort of tack those pages on from the second one in order. 
Nice. And then also how to merge files. So if you have two PDFs and you want to maybe insert the pages from one PDF in the middle okay. of another one, that's that would be merging those two files. We also talk about how to crop pages, rotate pages, encrypt and decrypt PDF files with passwords, and also get into a bit of creating PDF files using the Report Lab package. Oh, nice. Which is a, a popular third-party package for, for creating PDFs programmatically with, with Python. Yeah. I've been interested in that Report Lab tool. I was working on a project for um, this environmental science company, and we were you know, constantly trying to make tools for them that were kind of paperless, if you will. Yeah. And so I was using what I would argue is still one of the most clunky things that Adobe's ever created, which is Adobe Acrobat. (laughs) (laughs) In in some ways, I think creating PDFs programmatically can be more consistent and more more straightforward. So I'm I'm intrigued to read more about it there. Yeah. So Report Labs a very powerful package. You can do a lot with it because of its power. It's it's actually it can be kind of complex. So this is a very gentle introduction to getting started with that, but it doesn't really touch on a lot of the more powerful features in, in Report Lab. So it's just a kind of a whet your appetite a little bit, kind of show you, explain some of the basics of the different things that are needed there to create PDFs and then you know, set you up to, to take a deep dive yeah. later on. Report Lab has great documentation. They've got a whole guide that you can read that I think it's, it's over 100 pages. Awesome. They've put together some tutorials and walkthroughs and everything. So... Yeah, good stuff. But one of the things that I thought was interesting while I was researching and, and writing this this article was the history of sort of these PDF packages in, in Python. Okay. For manipulating PDFs, the package that we use in the article is called PyPDF2. Yeah. So there must have been a first version at some point. <laughs> sure. And I, I kind of looked at, you know, okay, what's what's the story here? And well, there was a PyPDF package that was created in 2005. Actually, I've got it as... Wow, 15 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> by someone, oh, I'm going to try to pronounce the name, Mathau Feniak, in 2005 launched this uh, PyPDF as a PDF toolkit focused on document manipulation, introspection, page cropping, encryption, decryption. So kind of the basic things you do with, with a PDF. In 2011, there was a company called Phaseit that sponsored a new fork of PyPDF called PyPDF2, which is what we're using in the in the article okay and it's the description here says the initial impetus was to handle a wider range of input pdf instances phase its commercial work often encounters pdf instances in the wild that it needs to manage mostly concatenate and paginate but that deviate so much from pdf standards that pypdf couldn't read them so pypdf2 was meant to better handle the pdfs in the wild that weren't obeying all the the standards to a to a t so it's a little bit more flexible good yeah. yeah, there's lots of things that generate PDFs now. Exactly, I mean, yeah. Well, as I researched deeper, I figured I found out that there's a PyPDF3 and a PyPDF4. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I looked into, you know, what's what's going on here? Should we be using some of these newer packages? And as far as I can tell, the author of PyPDF2 created a new fork called PyPDF3 and labeled it as a continuation of PyPDF2 and then abandoned it sometime in like 2017, 2016, 2017. Okay. And I'm not sure what the difference is there. And then just in 2018, so a couple of years ago, someone made a fork called PyPDF4 and there's no difference at all in the API or anything. 
and PyPDF2, they just mentioned that they were it was they were creating this new fork because of a new business model that they were trying. And I have no idea what that means. <laughs> okay. And also it seems to the last commit was uh over a year ago. Uh, so I'm not sure what these, these so we kind of regressed back to two. Yeah. <laughs> so PyPDF2 seems to kind of be the standard package. And it's all or Python 3, at least. Right? Python 3, at least. It, it is compatible with Python 3.8 as far as the code in, in the article has been tested on 3.6, 3.7, 3.8. Okay, cool. So the last thing I wanted to mention about the PDF, well, there's two things I wanted to mention. First of all, is that this the article is actually a preview of a chapter of the Python Basics, a practical introduction to Python 3 book that I have been working on with Dan for about two years now. Yeah. That's uh, been an ongoing project, and we'll talk more about that, I think, later. So if you're interested in, in, in that book or have heard about it or even haven't, you can go see, get a, a taste of what's in there by looking at this, this article. Yeah. But I also wanted to mention that, you know, PyPDF2, Report Lab, these aren't the only packages for working with PDFs. And so I've got a little list here of some other things that, as I was researching, I came across and thought were some, some interesting entries into that genre of Python packages. Cool. So there's another popular one, popular one called PDFRW, which is for reading and writing PDF files. It's a bit lower level than PyPDF2, so it's kind of gives you more control over how things are read and, and written, but it's also doesn't have quite as simple of an API that uh, PyPDF2 has. There's one called PDF Miner, which is another popular one for extracting data from a PDF. Yeah. And I just saw that as of 2020, it's now no longer being actively maintained. And there's a new fork called pdfminer.6.six, which is uh, the active repository now. Okay. There's one called Camelot, which is a relatively recent package that's strictly for extracting tables mm. from PDFs, which is a very common operation. And there's another brand new one that we featured in PyCoder's issue number 421 called PyPDFParser. And it also seems to be focused on uh, text and, and tables. So there's lots of lots of packages out there for for working with with PDFs that some are a bit more low level and, and some are just kind of more focused on specific tasks. Whereas PyPDF two is a much more general solution for for lots of things. It's interesting because I think it would kind of go along with the conversation I had with Kimberly Fessel about web scraping and how you know, a lot of the web isn't HTML. A lot of things may be files that you might be trying to grab. And so yeah. the most common way that, well, I think the most common way that things are passed around on the internet as documents are PDFs. And so if you're wanting to do data science kind of stuff and collect data out of your PDFs, these tools on top of something like Selenium that could help you, or Scrapey that could help you download those individual documents. And then this could go inside the documents and pull information out. Absolutely. So that's very cool. Yeah. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It's called Cool New Features in Python 3.8, and it's by me. I created this course based on the great article written by previous guest, Gerarn Yella. It's a good way to wrap your head around the new features found in Python 3.8. And in the video course, you'll learn about the Wallers operator and how using assignment expressions can simplify some code constructs. You also learn about enforcing positional-only arguments in your own functions, specifying more precise type hints, using f-strings for simpler debugging, and about some of the new warnings about dangerous syntax. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to understand 
what the most recent release of Python provides before moving on to the next version that's coming this fall. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections and you get code examples for the techniques shown. You can find a link in the show notes or you can find it using the newly enhanced search tool on realpython.com. Okay, so my next one is an overview of Python dependency management tools. And it's by Mario Kostelak, and that's at modelpredict.com. And it kind of goes into talking about Python package management and dependency management and the whole ecosystem that's grown inside of Python, uh, which is pretty large uh, of all these different sorts of tools that are out there and they're all in kind of different sort of states. And and so it's a a really good overview of all these different tools that are out there. It starts with pip, obviously, which most Python users probably have used. Pip is the package installer for Python. And pip, when you type in pip install, whatever the name of the package is, it talks to PyPI, which is the Python package index and, you know, grabs that information and installs it. And PIP has a set of tools. In fact, we just released a course on this. There's an existing article on using PIP on RealPython, but there's a, there's a course that I'll mention a little bit more later that goes into using PIP and all the kind of other kind of tools and techniques that people may not be aware of what, what you can do with it. And then again, it goes into VEN, which you mentioned earlier, V-E-N-V, um, which is something I use for virtual environments. It's built into Python. I think it came along in either Python 3.5 or 3.6. Yeah. I use this for you know creating all my courses because I don't want to be changing my existing environment and my Python install to experiment on new things. Like if I'm going to do you know a course on PDFs or something like that, and I'm going to try lots of different packages, it's nice to be able to have this virtual environment, something I can kind of create and work inside of, and 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 so forth. So it kind of goes into that, and then it talks about pip tools and py env pyenv. Yeah, and then. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about them. It goes into all of those. It spends quite a while talking about Conda, which is really popular in the data science world, distributed by Anacondas. And there's also the lighter version called Mini Conda. What's interesting about that whole environment, if you will, it has its own virtual environment manager uh, inside of Conda and its own package manager. You can use PIP with it, but it's really, if you start going into that environment, it makes a lot more sense to kind of do all your management through Conda inside of uh, Anaconda and that whole world there. And then it kind of dives into two that are sort of similar, pip env and poetry, which basically they kind of manage the workflow. They, you know, manage the environments that you're setting up. They help you with installing the Python packages and kind of making your environment reproducible. And then they can also get into this really nice advanced topic of like packaging and publishing your own Python packages. So if you were thinking about submitting something to PyPI, those are the types of tools that you might need for that. And they can help you with getting things going on that. And then the last is to just talk a little bit, uh, the odd duck and the whole (laughs) bunch of things is uh, they talk about Docker, which is another way to manage environments. And we talk a lot about that in episode eight of the podcast, uh, talking about using that for data science and other uses. But Docker is a great tool to, again, sort of isolate your setup and also hopefully make it reproducible and deployable out there in the cloud and things like that. Yeah. Docker is uh, is a really great tool. Yeah. I've been using it more and more over the past several years and felt like a, a bit of a steep learning curve. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out there or uh, perhaps bad information. There's some really good best practices that if you follow, kind of make it 
easy to get more reproducible builds and have it be more uh, portable and yeah distributable. But uh, yeah, it's a really it's a fantastic tool. I wanted to mention I, I really like pip tools. Okay, cool. And have started started using that more more and more recently. And one of the things that I like about it is you know I've been using pip for a long time. Whenever I work with virtual environments, I just always use the uh, VM package that's now in the the standard library. So things like you know pyenv and uh, pipenv and poetry. I've I honestly haven't played with poetry too much. I looked at pipenv for a little while. Thought it was it was neat. You know I already had my own workflows kind of built out and thought thought through and uh, liked the way that I I had, you know was doing things, and it seemed to be it was obscuring a lot of that stuff from me and, and it was difficult to sort of understand like exactly how is it managing the the virtual environment and is it the way that I want it to be working at right so one thing that I really like about pip and and I assume poetry does this too I, I haven't checked but uh, is that instead of having to specify all of your dependencies you can just specify like well I want to install Django well Django has a whole bunch of other dependencies but you know, normally in, in, in a kind of the standard workflows, you would, you know, install Django, pip's going to collect all of its dependencies, and then you would run something like pip freeze and dump it into a, a requirements.txt file. And you get this big requirements.txt file that has all of the dependencies in there. And it kind of becomes a nightmare to maintain that that text file and understand like, well, when I update one tool, do I, do I need to update another one or not update it or it just gets kind of kind of confusing. And so one of the things that I liked about PipViv is that you can just sort of manage this, uh, you know, this this PIP file that's got your main dependencies in it. And then the lock file, the PIP file.lock will have the dependency tree resolved for you, but it's sort of handled in the background. So PIP tools sort of does something similar and allows you to just specify the main dependencies that you want. Okay. And then it can generate a requirements.txt file for you, but you you put your dependencies that you're like your main dependencies that you're really interested in in like a requirements.in file.in. Okay. And you just have to maintain those. Like, you know, you want Django and you want, I don't know, like maybe a markdown extension or something for it. And you don't have to worry about the other all the 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 other dependencies, but it doesn't manage the virtual environment for you. So it really sits nicely on top if you have a pre-existing virtual environment workflow that you use it really fits in nicely with that so i thought that was a really cool tool nice yeah kind of a nice mid midway option between pip and like things poetry, like pip yeah, and, yeah. and poetry yeah he has a nice chart at the bottom which kind of goes into exactly what you're talking about kind of comparing the solutions and what's it do it installs python packages installing non-python packages managing versions and managing your virtual environment or the whole idea of environment reproducibility and right. Yeah. It's a, it's a good, it's a good guide to, you know, to kind of give you an idea of the landscape. So what's, what do you got next? My next article is called stop using datetime.now. <laughs> and it's a kind of a shocking title. Um, why would you stop using datetime.now? How else are you going to get the, the current time? Right. Well, the subtitle is practical dependency injection in Python. So yeah, those seem kind of different. Yeah. How are those two things related? That seems kind of <laughs> so this was a, a really, really cool article that that I found that's it actually comes from one of the real Python's contributors, Haki Benita, who's written several fantastic articles about Django for Real Python. 
he talks about how you would approach testing a function that uses daytime.now that's called in the function. And you want to make sure that that function is working appropriately. So how do you test that? You can't predict when you're going to run the test and what time daytime.now should be returning. So he talks about some third-party tools that you can use to to solve this for you. There's a there's a couple freeze gun and lib fake time, which I, I've used freeze gun before. It allows you to add a decorator to a a test case, like if, if you're using PyTest, a PyTest okay. test case that allows you to set the time that's going to be returned by daytime. So if you want to, it allows you to freeze it to say, make sure it always returns June 4th, 2020. And then you just know that that's what's going to be returned and you can treat the test. You can, you can write your test with that uh, knowledge. However, the downside is that you need these third-party libraries in order to do that. And sometimes you don't have the luxury of being able to depend on those. It's, it's generally, you know, for like a legacy system, this is really, really good to have these third-party dependencies. But if you're writing something from scratch and you want to keep your dependency tree as small as possible, then you may not want to have to rely on these, these packages. So how do you approach this? And the idea comes down to something called dependency injection. So he gives an example of where you're going to write a function called tomorrow, and it should return the date of tomorrow. So kind of the naive approach would be, okay, I'm going to define my function. It's going to return the datetime.today, which gives you today's date, and plus one day, which using the datetime.timedelta function, if you're, if, you're, if you're familiar with that. But you just add one to the okay. date returned by today. Well, then how do you go in and, and test that, that that is actually working? It's kind of impenetrable. You can't really test it. So there's a couple of ways to do it. Would, one would be using something like a, a mock where you could uh, monkey patch the daytime.today function, but that gets a little messy and may not be a, a good solution for you. So the solution that Hacky recommends, uh, or at least urges you to think about, it may not, may not be the right choice for what you're doing, but something to think about is to remove the dependency of the function on that daytime.today function and turn it into a parameter. So you would pass something to that function that is supposed to return today's date. And that's what gets used in the function. Hopefully that that makes sense. Yeah. Right. So you'd have tomorrow and it has a parameter. In his example, it's as of. And so you pass something to the as of parameter that is supposed to be the date for which tomorrow will be calculated. So that kind of generalizes the function. Now you could say, well, what is tomorrow as of, you know, last week, yeah. the, one week from today, but it gives you the date after whatever date you pass to it. So now you're able to test that it's actually working because you can, you can inject the value that you, that you want and make sure that you get the return value that you, ex that you expect from it. So it gives you more control. And he talks about the different types of dependency injection. So what I just described was actually injecting a value, but you could also inject a function. So rather than just injecting the, the value that you want to calculate tomorrow from, you could actually inject the function that, is, that computes the date of today. So you have control over what function is being used inside of your function. So it's just a, it's a really nice overview of what dependency injection is, how it works, why it is a desirable thing to use in, in programming, and how it can help you make code that's easier to maintain, easier to test. Yeah. And it's, and it's more practical. And it's giving you that kind of real world example of dealing with dates and times. And Absolutely, yeah. 
Well, and he, yeah, there's a whole section called dependency injection in practice. He talks about different scenarios. So one is IP lookup. So you want to try to guess where visitors to a Django site are coming from and, and then want to test that whatever system you come up with actually works and how dependency injection can help you with that, help you solve that problem. Yeah, cool. My last one is actually another RealPython article. Nice. And something I'm very excited about because now I have two of them. <laughs> it's build physical projects with Python on the Raspberry Pi. And I have a Raspberry Pi 3 and I have a Raspberry Pi 4 I just recently got. And uh, yeah, this came out on June 1st. You know, and the tutorial goes really into detail on setting up your Raspberry Pi, which I, I think is excellent because the resources for that are very scattered on the web. And this gives a really good compilation of like, you know, starting from scratch, like here's your Raspberry Pi and we're adding, you know, memory card, formatting it, putting on the operating systems, the different flavors of that kind of stuff. And so it's really good on that kind of background stuff, which I thought was awesome. And then it goes into the built-in Mew editor for working inside of Python, which is a, a nice, I won't call it an IDE, but it's, you know, a basic Python editor, text editor that's in there. But then he includes some details, which I think are great. It includes details about how to connect via SSH to your Raspberry Pi, which would allow you to potentially connect and you know, run this thing headless without a monitor and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so I decided to go ahead and do that and played around with it myself. And so I you know, created the SSH keys. I got to try out an area of VS Code I, I have never used, which is the ability to SSH in and remotely connect to this Raspberry Pi via VS Code, which was really great. Yeah. It talks a little bit about, you know, how you could use other text editors in the terminal there, like Vim. And I'm at a point in my career where I'm not super excited about learning Vim. It's just, there's so many key commands and things to memorize at this point <laughs> that, you know, I, I could imagine doing it, but it's just like a, it would be literally like a little project in order <laughs> to get up to speed. And I think the idea of remotely connecting via SSH seems like way more interesting to me and keeps me creating. <laughs> so yeah, the ability to connect with VS code is, is really, really cool. Um, I tried that out as well. And they've they've got some really cool tools built in there now that uh, yeah that make it just really easy to to connect and and get up and running slick. Uh, I will say though that it, I mean it depends on on what your what your uh, role is at your at your job, but sure, absolutely. <laughs> you know, V and, and Vim are are can be very essential if uh, you spend your day yeah you know having to SSH into these things, and that's literally all you have available <laughs> to to work in. So. Yeah, no, I, I, I know I need to, I need to learn them and, and, you know, it's just a matter of, of doing it, but yeah, this is kind of nice. Yeah, for sure. And I know real Python has a bunch of articles on it too. So I'll have to take the time to, to dive into deeper to Vim. That's my dark secret that I don't know it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as the article talks about, it gets really into the hardware side of it. And I think a lot of people may not realize like, you know, how much, connections are built into one of these things there's this yeah. huge connection bus of of pins that are on the, the side of that and they're all this sort of general purpose input output stuff along with you know grounds and voltage stuff it's very similar to like i did a course on the arduino has a lot of the similar kind of digital functionality there but you know you start with the button and making a script that responds to it and then of course connecting leds which is really common kind of basic stuff then you move into buzzers and then sort of advanced thing that you kind of 
create at the end is building up to a project where you have a motion sensing alarm. Yeah. And along with that, it has a log, which I think is really kind of neat where it can actually create this whole CSV file where it's indicates when the motion sensor went off times and all that kind of stuff. And it's kind of a neat little system. And, you know, out of all that stuff, I actually went on Amazon to see like what a passive infrared motion sensor costs. And it was like a pack of five was like, I don't know, $10 or something. Yeah. It was pretty reasonable. So I haven't bought one yet, but now I'm totally intrigued to to do that myself. So yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a neat article. Yeah. Very, very cool. And one of the things I love about this article is the illustrations that he's got for the, uh, how to connect things to oh, yeah. the Raspberry Pi. So he's, he's put a lot of, well, I think he used a tool, but I'm, I'm sure it still requires some effort to, I mean, you got to think about how all this, this gets connected, but he does a fantastic job of explaining in words how the wiring should be set up and then also providing a really like easy to look at and, and beautiful diagram of uh, the breadboard next to the, all the GPIO pins on the Raspberry Pi and how it all needs to be wired up and it's all color coded. And I, I think he did a really, really great job with that. Yeah. Good job, Jason. <laughs> I also really like that it's got, it kind of works its way up to this final project. So if you don't happen to have all the components right. for that final project, you can still build, there's like four other projects that you might be able to build. If you just have a button, there's one that just uses the button. And if all you have is an LED, then there's one that just uses the LED. So I thought that was, um, right. was really neat. Yeah. Yeah. And so that kind of helps you kind of think of offshoots of your own kind of projects that you could kind of build from there. And there's actually a, a nice list of uh, other potential resources for projects that you could build too, which I think is great. Yeah. So have you heard that they're going to release a Raspberry Pi 4 that has eight gigabytes of memory? <laughs> That's so crazy. Nuts. It took me a while to get my four gigabyte one. Um, it was like that kind of like sold out for months kind of thing last summer yeah and finally sometime in the fall it was like yay i could get one i mean the thing's amazing the fact you can attach two 4k monitors to this tiny little thing yeah is pretty shocking so i've done the i mean he talks about a little bit you know other things you could do with the raspberry pi but uh, the idea that you can you know do the game emulation and even just as a neat python device or you know a, a device that you can sort of set up like my wife wants me to do this crazy Christmas light project. So I'm feeling like this may be <laughs> a nicer tool for me to set up because then I can kind of like SSH into it and monitor it and check out how things are going and we'll see how my Christmas project goes. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Cool. So I wanted to end the episode with our typical questions, but this time I'll get a chance to chime in and you know, my weekly questions are, what are you excited about in the world of Python? And Again, that could be a package, hardware, editor, event, things that are going on inside the Python world. So what do you got this week? Yeah, so something I'm, I'm really excited about is the Python Basics book, which I mentioned. We will be releasing that at the end of June or the very, very beginning of, of July. We'll have the final electronic version done. Oh, cool. With a professional edit, everything kind of buttoned up and, and finally put all together. That's been a heck of a wild ride getting... <laughs> a couple of years you said a couple yeah, a couple of years my house flooded twice during <laughs> the process oh, yeah. of writing writing the book so it's it's just been a lot of effort and but it's been a a, a phenomenal process working on that with uh with dan and, and joanna and, and the rest of the, the editorial team so I'm, I'm super excited to finally get that done and finalized and 
out into the world. And uh, we'll, there'll be some more news released about that as we get closer to the to the date. But yeah, I'm just thrilled to finally yeah. see that coming to light. Well, I think of that, you know, that's it's kind of going beyond the basics. You kind of get into a lot more of this applicable stuff that you've done. Uh, at least two of them I can think of now is the, the PDF article that you, is you know partially from the book. Mm-hmm. And then you have another one about GUIs yes. and doing stuff in tkinter, which uh, is another article people can check out on, on Real Python if they want to get an idea of the thoroughness and the things that uh, you know go beyond basics, actually doing things with the basics, which is cool. Yeah, that's that's true. It, it's called Python Basics, and it, it starts with it, it, no assumption that you've ever programmed before. So it starts from sure. the very basics and walks you through getting an environment set up and, and getting started programming with Python talks about the language and everything. And you go through that whole, like the whole first half of the book is devoted to teaching you the Python language. The second half of the book is uh, actual practical applications. So we talk about working with PDFs. We talk about scraping the web, working with databases, uh, working with files, building a GUI. Uh, As you mentioned, uh, we do briefly cover like plotting, NumPy. Uh, We don't talk about pandas or that too much, but we talk matplotlib and, and NumPy just as kind of a, short introduction to that yeah. that world yeah there's a lot of real world applications there that so the idea is when you're done with the book i mean you've you've learned python but you also have an idea of how you actually use python and have built yeah. a few different uh, projects to kind of get you started yeah and dive into a whole bunch more real python stuff from there cool oh yeah tons of stuff yeah that we have a whole resource page that uh, you get access to when you purchase the book that kind of fans out into all the different content that we have on on real python to kind of let you explore further and 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 gain more skills and and practice what you've learned cool so mine is i'm super excited about wx python uh, which another gui yeah i'm creating a course for it i'm kind of about halfway done with it so it'll be you know coming upcoming the months and so but I, I finally got a nice project to build with it and it's involving musical instruments that i've had for a long time but you know, I used to live in Hawaii and I never really kind of set up my recording studio and did much music stuff there. I just kind of dabbled. And so I'm excited to kind of get back into that. So I unearthed like this old Roland JV 1010 sound module I have, which has thousands of sounds in it. And then I started playing with this program called Ableton Live. And it unfortunately doesn't have a great tool for choosing the banks of sounds and the, sending out what are called program changes. And I was like, oh, this is a perfect project. So I've started on it to kind of mess around with WX Python and give me this visual interface and connect to this database of sounds and then be able to, you know, click on these sound names as opposed to like having to go look in a book and type in numbers and nice. Yeah. Enter and all that stuff. So it'll be it'll be a nice uh, kind of little side tool, mostly just for me, but you know, I, I'm just excited to kind of get another real world use for uh, WX Python there. Yeah, that's super cool. So the next question is, hey, what do you want to learn next in Python? You know, I have never really had an opportunity to learn really in depth all the the async IO stuff. Okay. Yeah, I've never had the opportunity to really do a deep dive into async IO and and learn more about that. I've I've had the opportunity to uh, actually do the technical review on a couple of our async IO articles and and of course you have to do a bunch of research, fact checking on that kind of stuff and yeah. and you get a, a taste on it and I've so I'm familiar with with some of the basics, but it still, you know, seems like a bit of a, a mystery to me. So most of the work that I've done professionally has involved a lot of CPU bound type stuff where we're doing a lot of number crunching and uh, and everything. So 
all the IO bound stuff is I've used requests. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but uh, never had a need for the power of something like uh, async IO. So yeah, something I definitely want to learn. Yeah, cool. Mine kind of builds on top of my other project there. When I talked to Lucas Longa about his async IO talk at PyCon, he was using a Python package in his example project that you know he had up on GitHub. This package called Python-RT-MIDI. And I guess RT-MIDI is a C++ library. And Christopher Arndt created a library to implement that in Cython. And it's really nice. It, it kind of breaks the MIDI commands and that sort of stuff down pretty, pretty simply. And I already kind of played around with just doing fundamental stuff, sending notes and sending these program changes with it, just like really simple scripts. So I'm excited to, you know, tie that into my WX Python thing and build on top of that with, uh, with that. And kind of going back to yours, um, Lucas has this really great series on async IO, not only his talk at PyCon, but you know, with his edge DB, yeah. with his company at edge DB, he's created a whole series of video tutorials on async IO, which are really good. So oh, nice. I'll link to that stuff again. So I got to check those out. Yeah, totally. Well, Hey, thanks for coming on the show and sharing all these articles with me. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. All right. Talk to you soon. Yep. Talk to you later. I want to thank David Amos for coming on the show this week and bringing along all those great articles. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and look forward to talking to you soon.